It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Alrighty, we're ready to start chapter 12. I think. Sound familiar? Mm. Oh, goody. Now, Samuel's been around for a while, and this is called Samuel's Farewell Speech. Now, this is chapter 12. Samuel is not going to die until chapter 28. (laughs) (laughs) But it's called his farewell speech. Sounds like a movie. (laughs) Or or a really long sermon when the the pastor says three three times in conclusion, right? And and it goes into something else, all right? So this is a farewell speech, but not a goodbye speech. Now, stay with me here. This is a farewell speech because what what he is saying is, my role with you, the nation of Israel, is going to change dramatically. So I'm saying farewell to our former relationship, that we can now start a different relationship. But just to be clear, the new relationship is not going to be nearly as good as the old relationship. But this is what you have forced upon me. But I can no longer conduct myself as I have in the past with you and now must change my job description. So it's a farewell to the way it has been, not farewell to me as the person. I'm still going to be around, but my role in this new monarchy is going to change dramatically. See, up till now, Samuel was the leader of the nation who took his orders from God. So Samuel acted as judge and prophet. Now with a king, Samuel will become an occasional spokesperson for God. (coughs) From now on, the role of Samuel will change, and he's going to do... He used to be prophet and judge. Now his job description is going to be two two different things. One is that he will intercede with God for the people. So he will pray to God for the people when they really screw up. And secondly, his new role is going to be that he will instruct them, look at verse 23, in the way that is good and right. So he he will help the people to understand what God wants, but he's not going to be the official spokesperson for God anymore. Because the people have said, we do not want this. We will not listen anymore to this. Remember, Samuel was trying to to help them make a decision with the king and everything. And I said, nope, you're stupid. We don't want any part of you. So God is pulling back. And now Samuel, by definition, must as well. Basically, rather than be the, the mouthpiece for God, Samuel simply becomes the moral conscience of the nation. Now, that's, a, that's not an insignificant matter but you see the moral conscience of the nation gives you the opportunity to reject it right do do we not have people designated in our country as the moral conscience of 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 america Uh, billy graham right do does everybody listen to billy graham 
No. We're lucky if half the people listen to Billy Graham. A tenth of the people listen to Billy Graham, right? So being that moral conscience doesn't give you the authority of God. It's based on God, and everybody should know that. But when people choose to go their own way and do their own thing, God is not a factor. So they will bypass anything from God. And Samuel realizes that. You have, you have gone so far away from God and no longer allowing him to be your king and now placing this tall man on the throne that our relationship must change. And we're going to see Samuel almost fade into the woodwork. Um, he, he won't have a whole lot of contact with, with the king or the nation <coughs> from, from here on out. So my, 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 my point is Samuel's role is going to be vastly different than it has been up to this point. Now, the chapter begins with Samuel justifying himself before the people. <coughs> Under his leadership, again, simply following what God told him to do, the nation was designed to be fair and equitable. That's what God wanted for the nation. And Samuel was leading the people to do that. Now Samuel is throwing down the gauntlet of challenge for the people that they will testify against him and say, pick some way that my leadership was wrong. That's what he's saying. Give me an example of something that I did wrong, of why you are now... You know, remember God said, the people aren't really rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me, God, but he's still taking it personally. <laughs> and you can understand that. You know, I mean, I was the one speaking, you are basically rejecting me, so give me a good reason why. Now, of course, the people can't give any evidence whatsoever. They can't cite one time that Samuel was, was misleading the people. So then Samuel says, well, let's ask the Lord if he has anything against me. Then we'll ask the Lord if he has anything against you, Israel. <laughs> He's pretty clever that way. <coughs> So Samuel contrasts his leadership with that of this new king. Now, remember what God warned the people. If you pursue this king route, this is what will happen to you. The king will take and take and take and finally make you his slaves. So Samuel asked, have I ever taken anything from you? I was simply here to try and help you. His point is how stupid it is to reject one who actually treats you well and instead insist on a king who's going to take everything from you. That makes no sense at all. In verses 3 and 4, Samuel uses the word take four times. Right? That's the point he's making. I took nothing from you. This king is going to take everything from you. Why would you choose this course of action? So he's simply reminding the people what God had already said. The king is going to take and make you his slaves. Verse 5. What, what does verse 5 mean? The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day. That's an odd phrase. What do you, what do you think that means? He uses the word witness twice. What does a witness do? Testifies. Testifies by what? What they've seen. What, what they've seen, what their experience is, what they know to be the truth. Right? 
The Lord's a witness against their choice, their poor choice. Okay, so, so God saw what they did. Right. Yes. So now God is the witness on the stand against, you know, first of all, Samuel says, hey, I'm, I'm ready to be on trial here. <coughs> Let's put God on the stand and see if God has anything to say about me. But then God will also be the witness, the, the anointed. Samuel was the anointed of God, was the chosen one of God, the consecrated one of God who was designed for this specific task. Now remember, Saul was also anointed, consecrated for a specific task. The task of the king was to listen, to consult with God on everything, and make sure the people obey God. That's the only two things the king was supposed to do. Well, as we proceed here, we will see how Saul refuses to do either one of those. <coughs> so the Lord sees all, and Samuel is sure that God will justify him in the end. Now again, if God does it back then, God will do the same with us today. So that in a situation in which you, you did do the right thing, and another person or even everybody thinks you did the wrong thing, God will make it clear sometime. It'll come around somewhere. So you have to be willing to wait for that. Now in verse 6, it, it does seem to be turning into a courtroom scene here. The Lord is the witness, and now Samuel intends to introduce evidence. <laughs> you know, exhibit 3A is, you know, so he's, he's turning it into a courtroom. And the evidence he's presenting is the consistent history of how God has been trustworthy. That's it. So in other words, if God has been trustworthy for all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, why would you think now God would stop doing that? But through it all, Samuel is vindicating himself. He's putting the blame where it needs to be put. The people were basically saying, well, Samuel's not doing a very good job. God's not doing a good job. We fire you. We will figure it out on our own. This is Samuel's way of saying and bringing it to their attention, nope, you guys have made some really bad decisions here. Look at verses 12 and 13. Samuel is saying, God has taken care of you since the beginning. He's been faithful and true. So why do you now demand a king to replace God? Your logic is completely irrational. Verse 13 in particular. Samuel is saying here, yeah, you have demanded and you have chosen. You asked for this king and you got him. God has given him to you. Again, this wasn't God's design, but knowing that the people were going to continue to demand it, he said, okay, fine, go ahead. But this will be the consequence. So don't come crying to me whenever it actually happens. Israel demanded a king and God has been faithful and set this king over you. Keep in mind, Saul is the king that the people demanded. And, Saul, and God is simply giving them <coughs> what they want. The people will soon realize they have indeed made a bad decision. Now, keep in mind, this is a real good example of it, that scripture says that all governments in the world are set by God. 
Now, it doesn't mean that God brought that person into power. What it's saying is God can use even a dictator. And you can see that all through biblical history. You've seen it all through history. Some dictators last for a long time. Castro. Others not so long. Hitler. There's no rhyme or reason to it. But regardless of the circumstance, God can use it because God is still in charge. So think of it in terms of commander-in-chief. God is saying the king is not the commander-in-chief. I am. You want a king, I'll give you a king. But he will not take my role away from me. I will still function as I always have. And I will do so with the king or without the king. So that's what God does. Fine. You want to put this dictator on your throne? No problem. I can work around that. That's what God does. But God does, by, by setting the king, the dictator, in place, what that really means is God allows that king or dictator. So God didn't say, oh, Hitler, he's going to be awesome. He's going to do exactly what I want him to do. You know, exterminate millions of Jews. That wasn't the plan of God. Much the same as Saul was not the plan of God. But God allows it and God can nonetheless use it. And he always, always does. It just takes a while to begin to see it. So look at all the bad guys throughout history. I mean, Hitler... Pretty bad. Stalin, to this day, the, the biggest murderer in history. Uh, Nero, back in the early church days. Really bad guys. But you can see how, you know, especially there with Nero and, and those, those, those Roman emperors, I mean, made it impossible for Christians to be Christians. Well, guess what? The Christian church grew tremendously <laughs> as a result of that. So I can say God can work around anything. That's where we need to have faith. And that's what we're going to see with Saul, is that even against insurmountable odds, with God as commander-in-chief, you have to trust in that, not in what you see before you. <coughs> so Samuel is setting forth how the people and the king can continue in God's favor. So God says, I don't like this king deal, but I will work with the king under these conditions. So again, God is not backing off and saying, all right, you guys just go do whatever you want. God is still true to himself and still you know, forming the pattern by which the people need to operate. With the instruction that if you still don't follow what I tell you, there's going to be trouble. So the rules are the people must serve God. And the king now must basically function as Samuel did. Prophet and judge. Remember, Samuel said, farewell, I'm not doing this anymore. We still need those rules fulfilled. The king now will be called upon to do that. So the effectiveness of the king is dictated by being the spokesperson for God, which means making the people obey God, <coughs> and serve God. The king's job is to make sure the people do that. That's how they will stay in the Lord's favor. Which means that 
a king who does not do those two functions and the people refuse to do their singular function of serving God. The king leads them to serve God and the people must serve God. And the king also acts as the prophet of God. If anything in that relationship goes askew, the blessing of God will be removed. That ain't necessarily say a curse will be upon you, something direct. But simply God withdrawing his favor from the people is curse enough. Remember Romans 1? The wrath of God is, is on us. When we choose to go our own way, when we choose to suppress the truth and exchange the truth for a lie, the wrath of God is upon us. Not that God is sending lightning bolts down to us. It's just that God says, okay, have at it. Here's lots of rope. You going to hang yourself or not? That's how he functions. He's not going to force us to do anything. Verses 14 and 15. Another of the many if-then statements in the Bible. Since we must believe that God has indeed always been faithful and true, then we should have no problem trusting God with today. So Samuel is saying, if you, every one of you, has a healthy fear or respect for God, and as a result you devote yourself to obey and serve Him alone, and you do not rebel or reject God, and if both everyone in the nation and this new king follows the Lord, See that then? <laughs> then, verse 16, just watch what God will do. So now, things have changed. Usually, God asks us to do one thing and gives us five, six, ten back. This will now require the people to do a whole bunch of things. And God says, generically, I'll be doing a whole bunch of things. Nothing specific. So, look at the list. You have to have a healthy respect, a fear of God. One. Number two, you devote yourself to God. Three, you obey God. Four, you serve Him alone. Five, you do not rebel or reject God. Six, the nation and the king must follow the Lord. Then, watch what God will do. Now that's not, well, I'll do one or two of those. That was six things you must do all six to receive the favor of God. <coughs> Look at verse 15. If you do not obey the Lord by rebelling again, God's hand will be against you, as you have been seen as you have seen God consistently act in previous generations with those who reject him. God's hand against you. Those are the same words used when the Philistines took the ark and placed it next to the god Dagon. And he toppled the the, the statue over twice, right? The people realize the hand of God is against us. That's exactly what they said. Hands are pretty powerful, right? Is that what we use to punch people with? <laughs> right? When the hand of God is, is against you, you get a bloody nose. 
right? That's the imagery. So, again, this is not a passive God who is just going to go, you know, pout because he has been rejected. But he's using this bad situation and reconfiguring. Basically still getting exactly the way it has always been, but now using different circumstances to get there. We have to use this king, so now the king will act as the prophet used to. Directing and, and demanding that the people obey and serve God, essentially. Make sure that they do that. If the king doesn't do that, then yes. My favor will be pulled and my hand will be against you. Verse 16. Even though you have rejected God, just watch this great thing the Lord is about to do. Verse 17. So... Just so you know that you're demanding a king immediately means that you have rejected God. I will ask God to send thunder and rain. Now, they mentioned the wheat harvest. The Bible's full of just subtle clues. In Israel, the wheat harvest is in May and June. May and June, it never rains. Ever. Ever. I mean, it is meteorologically anomaly if it ever rains in the month of May and June. This is the time that Samuel says, God will make it rain. And just to make sure you understand, he'll make it, make it thunder as well. <clears throat> and sure enough, Samuel asked God to do it, and it happens immediately the people realize that God really is in control. That would get your attention. Mm -hmm. It would be like snow in July. Right? That never, ever happens. But God can do it. And the people realize that. Samuel is telling the people that they have gotten themselves into this predicament, but with God there is still hope. Obey God from this day forth, and you will be blessed. So you see, what, what Samuel is saying is, everything has changed, and nothing has changed. <laughs> you have tried to change everything, but in fact, God is still operating the exact same way he always has. By your stupidity, by your impracticality, by your being childish, that still does not change God. God is still going to get what God always gets. And God is flexible enough just to use a different program to get it. So rather than a prophet, we have a king. But the king's role is to be exactly like the prophet. right? So God is still going to get what God wants, regardless. God is treating you now as he always has, Samuel is saying. Even though we moved from a, a theocracy, God-led government, to a monarchy, the rules are still the same. God will bless you if you obey him. That's always been. Nothing new here. But if you choose to reject God, whether it is a nation under God's rule or if you are under a king, that makes no difference. Right? The rule has always been the same. Now, yes, there is a new political structure 
But if you look over the history of the Israelites, God has always treated disobedience the exact same way. So with these new rules now, that are really the old rules, God is saying, this is how I will interact with my people. And as you look at God interacting with his people, that hasn't changed one bit. It's exactly the same. Basically, God is saying, if you're willing to work with me, I would love to work with you. But I'm not going to force you to work with me. Obey and serve God regardless of government, and you will be blessed. So that's why the government you have does not matter with your faith. Harken back to Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Terrible dictator. Awful, awful person. Actually had the Jews as slaves in his country. Could not get any worse. Now, they were the only ones doing it, but it can be done. It's not difficult. It's the personal choice we make. So we can't blame the government for our bad faith. We can't blame any circumstance. See, that's the universal with God. So it doesn't matter what, what, what your family history is. It doesn't matter what government you have. All the excuses we use of why we are this way <laughs> all fall by the wayside with God. It comes down to obey me and serve me. I don't care if somebody's holding a gun to your head. Obey me and serve me. There is no circumstance that warrants us changing that policy. Because God will not allow it. Just because we get whiny and think that I don't want to do it, does not change God's demand of obey me and serve me. If you disobey God, regardless of government, <coughs> God's wrath will befall you. And it probably will result in God simply pulling back and letting the nation go our own way. So whether you have a king, a president, or a dictator, the rule of God is the same. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. It's a pretty simple formula, right? So yeah, we want to use all the you know, excuses and, you know, well, this circumstance or whatever. It does not matter. Now, a government cannot make the people do anything. But by the same token, what Samuel is saying is the government can't stop you from being faithful either. A government can't make you faithful. A government can't stop you from being faithful. It is all about the personal choice. We don't rely on a government to, to do this for us. The government will not save you. you. Scripture says clearly, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to work this out yourself. So I can't save you either. By the same token, I can't keep you from being faithful. You can't use me as the excuse. This is about personal choice. And that's what Samuel is saying. Now after that big speech, verse 19, it sounds like the people finally get it. Don't get too excited. That's going to pass in five minutes. Right? But right now, if we could stop in verse 19, it would be awesome. <clears throat> Notice what, what, what Samuel... The thing that, that the people say that gets Samuel and God's attention. The people are willing to admit that they have sinned by demanding a king. 
See, again, that's the magic formula with God. When you are ready to specify your sin and repent without using the word but, but they made me do it, right? I sinned. Lord, please forgive me. I repent. God will always respond to that. And here we see a genuine sense of that. Because it does always come back to sin. Pure and simple. Notice also that the, the people are not making an excuse. They simply admit their sin. Trust me, God would not have responded if the people said, Yes, we sin by asking for a king, but... You put a period at the end, at the end of, uh, of king. We sin for, by asking for a king. Period. Exercise your Miranda rights and learn the value of closing the mouth and not saying anything else. It'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. Verse 20. God is willing to accept their repentance and forgive them. Now Samuel brings it back around to the main thing they must do. Serve the Lord with all your heart. He keeps harping on that because that is the, the, the absolutely most important function of the people. Serve God. Now you serve God in a thousand different ways. But again I will remind you. What we do Sunday morning is called a worship service. Deliberately. Worshiping God is the, the most important way we serve God. Well, how am I serving God? I'm not doing anything. Oh, yeah, you are. Right? You are humbling yourself and coming before the Lord <coughs> and offering yourself in worship. That's your service. It's not your only service, but it is absolutely necessary. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Again, hearkening back to last week's sermon. That's what God is concerned about. And again, why I still want to have over the front door of the church here a sign that says, check your attitude. If you come in with the wrong attitude, without your whole heart, you are an offense to God. If you're coming in with the attitude of, well, I just want people to see me and I want to look good, or a politician who appears in a church just to be reelected, so people see him or her, you know, as a holy person for a week or two before the election. That eh, doesn't work real well. God knows that. He knows your heart. So why put on airs? So that's why when you know Jesus had such a problem with the Pharisees because they had these these formal, you know, typed up prayers. Oh, thou Lord God Almighty. And then, you know, you just, you read it like Shakespeare, right? Jesus, that, that's useless. You, know, you pray from the heart. He says, yeah, that guy prayed for 15 minutes and said nothing. Look at this guy over here. Can't even lift his head to heaven. Hangs his head and says, Lord, forgive me for I'm a sinner. Jesus says, that guy gets it, <laughs> right? That's a whole heart experience. So it's not the formal words we use to get God's attention and impress God with how, how smart we are. It's a simple heart experience of our heart reaching out 
to the heart of God. It's not just a little heart. Because a little heart means that God, the church, the faith, are a hobby. Something we do occasionally. A little heart means that you think of God as a genie in the bottle. <coughs> or Adam Hamilton's phrase, <laughs> the, the magic eight ball. Remember, remember that? That little black ball from the, the, from the 60s, early 70s? It had, had, what, eight, eight responses. All answers in the world can be given with eight responses. So you get that out whenever you get in trouble and shake that, and then as if that's God's real answer, right? That's not the way God works. God is not here to get you out of a jam. Because you're in the jam because you chose to be in the jam. So he's not going to just come in on a white horse and rescue you. But he will, when you call out for him, he will be there with you and help you through it. But God will not be too quick to respond if we have snubbed God for weeks and weeks and months and years. And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, we just cry out to God and expect God to be there in a second and do everything we want him to do. We are to serve God every day. Do that. What Samuel is saying is God will be at the ready to forgive you, to love you, to heal you, to do all that God does and to be such a blessing in your life. But you cannot expect the blessing of God, nor will God give it to you. If you are going your own way, doing your own thing, and not serving God, not obeying God for weeks and months and years, and then all of a sudden just think that... God needs something to do, so I'll call upon him and expect him to do it. The rest of the chapter simply reiterates that same theme. Serve God or else. Not a great sermon title. You better serve God. If you choose anything other than serving God, look at the quote, you and your king will be swept away. A tsunami of the curse of God will befall you and sweep you away. Now, there's a lot of bad in this chapter. But see, the people are starting to get it. And what they get is the grace of God. So this is really a chapter about grace. And to make sure that we don't limit our understanding of grace, we need to look at what God is doing with his people in this chapter. Now, obviously, grace is demonstrated in God's desire and willingness to forgive. <clears throat> Granted, the people were not worthy to be forgiven. They arrogantly chose what they knew God did not want for them. But when the people were willing to repent, boom, there is God ready, full of grace, to forgive them. But we need to also consider a second facet of grace. And that is... That God takes a bad situation and makes it good. Again, regardless of government, it doesn't matter. So let's, let's use the word transform. God can transform a bad situation into a good situation. God can take this bad situation of King Saul and transform it into something good. King David. In fact, the family tree of Jesus follows the kings of Israel, starting with David, not Saul. Saul's name doesn't appear in any genealogy. Because remember, God says, I am cutting you off. Your lineage 
will no longer be part of this whole process. <coughs> God is able to take the sin of this nation and turn it into something good. I mean, do I need to remind you of what the promise in Romans 8 is? God works all things for the good for those who love him. It's not God works all things for the good. For people who refuse to serve and obey God. doesn't work that way. That's why the focus is on serving and obeying God. If you serve and obey God, God will work all things for the good because serving and obeying God is a sign of our love for him. Right? If you're doing that, yes, you expect that God will work all things for the good. Maybe not today, but eventually. He works all things for the good. And maybe not even in this lifetime. Maybe that healing will not come until we get to heaven. But the promise is given. Now, I wish Abraham and Sarah had followed that policy. The, the eventual working all things for the good. 90 and 100 years old, well, we must have misunderstood <laughs> that, that God was going to work this for the good. We better take this in our own hands and work it to the good ourselves. Well, thanks a lot. Right? <clears throat> so, yeah, we see that throughout Scripture. And we're going to see Saul do it here in the next chapter or two. The ability to wait patiently for God to work this for the good. Even if, again, the outside circumstances humanly do not warrant it. When we take the authority of God in our own hands, take it away from God, that's when God says, okay, you're the master of your own destiny, go at it. And it always, always, always turns out bad. Right now the people are resigned to obey and serve God, to love God. And God is willing to transform this bad situation into something good. The people did reject the authority of God. But look at what God can do even in terrible circumstances. He is able to convert this into a savior. Starting with David is in the direct line of Jesus. That's the big picture plan. Took a while. But again, there is that patient expectation <coughs> that God will work all things for the good sooner or later but it requires us to love God and we do that by serving him and obeying him now that's pretty much yes or no there's not not, not gray area in, in, in loving, serving or obeying you're either going to do it or you're not now we can't expect others to do it until we ourselves are doing it so we have to make sure we understand this. We have to make sure that our lives are demonstrating this on a day-to-day -day basis. And if we are showing that to others, that will make an impact on people who are not here yet. But we can't go out pointing the finger at them, you're such a great sinner, when we have this log in our own eye. We have to make sure we understand this ourselves and are committed to this exclusively you show your love for God by serving him and obeying him
period. Now, branches off in a thousand different ways, but the, 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 our heart needs to be everything we say and do is a means of loving God. You show your love for God and how we interact with each other. And there's chapter 12. Thoughts, comments, questions on chapter 12? <coughs> I have one. Shoot. You said that if you come to church and you, you're not where you need to be, it's offensive to God. A lot of times, when I hit the church door on Sunday, I'm not where I need to be. I, I've got a lot on my mind or whatever. But then, when I come in and somebody <coughs> hugs me or after yeah. this thing, then I get, so am I offending him by coming? I mean, what, I, I mean, I, I, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm different. When I walk through the door, and then when I leave, I'm different. I'm different. That's but, great. No, that's it, it, again the, the transforming. There needs to be a change. So yes. So if if you're that way out there, when you get in here, and you, what you're doing is you're doing the right thing. You're allowing God, the Holy Spirit, to transform you. Now, if you came in and were completely resistant and reluctant to be changed, God would have a problem with that, because so then I'm, then you're just here for the show. So then I, I mean, I mean, I, I more times than not, I know, I know, I need to come. I know this is where mm -hmm. I need to be to get zapped, you know. But I do come through the door. And I'm going to be honest, and <coughs> you know, with my mind a million different places. But then I'm a lot better when I leave, so I'm okay. That's why I tell everybody you're the smartest person I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Shay. <laughs> No, seriously. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just going to say your basic attitude is to be here. Right. Well, yeah, I know this is where I need to be. Yeah, I know I need to come. But your basic attitude is I, I'm, I'm, I'm here for that reason. You're not here. You're here because you feel this is the place to be. This is where you come <coughs> to get closer to God. This, this is where you come to get some of that healing. So I always say zapped. I come to get zapped because, I, I, I mean, I, I really do because I... It's it's bad. It's bad when I can do so, it on a Sunday. I'm maybe, it's bad. Maybe the sign I need to have above the door is prepare to have your attitude adjusted. <laughs> right? Well, maybe. Yeah, yeah. maybe because... because yeah. Yeah, it, it is supposed to do that, yes. Okay. Um, but again, there are a lot of people who go to church for the wrong reason and refuse to get right with God. But again, see the heart though in what you just said? My, my, my heart is reaching out to God knowing that God can, can take my, my junk and turn it into something good, can transform it into something good. And you, you allow that to happen. Okay. That's perfect. So yeah, so it, but you're, you're, you're looking to God to do that, you see. The problem would be, God, I don't think you can do it, therefore I will work with myself till I get it right. I won't come to church until I get it right myself. Well, that's probably never going to happen, right? right? And there you are refusing God your entire life, you see? So yes, let us work with you. I'll, I'll, I'll start meeting you at the door of the ball bat. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Other thoughts on chapter 12? <coughs> I think, what, was the, what was the time from 
chapter 11 to chapter 12, I mean, Saul, Samuel had to be speaking to Saul as well as all the other people here. I mean, Saul had to be hearing this message as well. Mm -hmm. So this, there wasn't much time between chapter 11 No, no, it's just part, one continuous story, yeah. Continuing on. Yep. Or well, interesting, chapter 13 starts with a time frame. Gives you the, yeah. Yeah. the, the calendar that... Yeah, so we're still at the early part of Saul being king, and he's king for 42 years. Oh, like I said, sometimes God lets you on the throne for a while, <laughs> right? But he can still work with that. Again, David's next. So we just got to wait for David to be born. David's not even born yet, right? So it's all part of the plan of God. But the important thing is we don't see it. We cannot see it. All the more reason that we need to trust God who does see it. Right? So our lack of faith is basically saying to God, I don't trust you with what I don't know or I can't hold my grubby hands on to. That doesn't sound right, does it? So faith means that we do trust God with what we don't know, with what we don't understand, with what we can't hold and manipulate and control ourselves. I trust you, God, with that. But if we have a relationship with God, we can fall back on something. Down here in 24, be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. Yeah. Go back in your life. Right. Go back and remember. Recall what He has done for you. Yep. <coughs> and it's, your list is very, very long whenever, whenever you be. really sit down and can consider it. So we do have something that can know. It's not like a cup that I can hang on to. Right. But it's experiences. And it's great things that have happened. Uh, that we do have something to hold on to. But that still impinges on the heart. If you have a hard heart like Pharaoh, you, you will not consider that. No, you won't have things. You, 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 you will say that, you know, I, 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 I want this to be all about me. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so it, it, the first step is, you know, we keep seeing it in Scripture, is that, that, that humbling, to humble, humble yourself before the Lord, and then, because humbling means that, okay, God, I, I need you. And once God hears that, that's when God really, really, you know, kick, kicks in and starts blessing. But until we do that, big trouble. Right? So, yes, he is right there available. And, yes, we have the memory of, of all that God, God has done. And the Holy Spirit will reveal that to us. But, again, only if our heart's in the right place. If, like, like Reagan said, if I'm willing to be molded and shaped, transformed, God will love to do that. But if we are arrogant and, and heart of heart and resistant, that, that just simply is not, not going to happen. <coughs> Any other thoughts on chapter 12? All right, chapter 13. So again, interestingly, Saul begins his reign at age 30. And again, in, in this culture, you have to be 30 years old to, to have any sense of wisdom. Jesus had to wait till he was 30 to start his ministry. They would not have listened to them. God himself they would not have listened to if he was not 30 years old. That's just the way it is. It seems like they live a long, long life, and then other times, yeah. it seems like they, how could they have with the way they lived? The, the vast majority did not live. 
And that's why 30 was the magic number. If you could live to be 30, you've got to be pretty smart. We will listen to you. Because literally most people died before that. Remember God cursing Eli? You're, you're, no one in your family will ever live beyond the prime of life. Which, you know, the average life expectancy was 40 years. You know, they're dying at 20, 25 years of age. Yeah. Yeah, it, it just, it, it, it was really different, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. You know, we're, we're used to, you know, 80 years old now is the norm, you know, for age, age expectancy. But, uh, you know, that's like double what it was back then. But there were exceptions to the rule. I mean, obviously, Saul lived to be 72. Extraordinary. Right, but that that was yeah, way 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 back. There seemed to be a, a definite downturn of of age. You know, cer certainly after right, immediately after the flood, you know, they were living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and they walked out of the, out, out, out of the ark, and God says, "I can only stand you people for 120 years. That's it." So He put a cap of 120 years. So, but 72 is pretty pretty high up the scale, yeah. <coughs> so, so he's going to be king for 42 years. Now, look at the section there, verses 3 through 12. Because what we're talking about here is, is God's patience. Now, biblical patience means that, that when God says to wait, no matter what the circumstance, you had better wait. Abraham and Sarah, right? So here we see that same attitude. Things look bad, and from our human standpoint, if you were at that battle, you'd have looked at that, and soldiers are deserting you and everything. You know, every minute you wait, more soldiers leave. On paper, what Saul did looks like a really good decision, a good military move, right? We, we can't postpone this any longer. But you see, it disregarded the fact that God is the commander-in-chief. God has information, Saul, that you are not aware of. Therefore, you cannot make a decision based on incomplete information. It would be foolish to do so. But Saul does nonetheless. <coughs> Remember the promise? If you serve me and obey me, watch what great things I will do for you. We forgot that right away. This is like the next day, right? He doesn't take into account that God has something really good in store and is simply testing Saul to see if he'll remain faithful. That's the test. Do you trust me? I said I will do this. I will do this if you let me do this. Well, the end result is Saul fails. He does not do it. Verse 8. Samuel is still acting as a spokesperson for God, and, and Samuel directs Saul to wait seven days. God sent Samuel, give him this message. Now, apparently there was no explanation of what is to occur in those seven days. Just go wait seven days. Kind of like Joshua at Jericho. Go walk around Jericho day after day. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> It makes no sense to me. Let's do something proactive here. But God said no. No one understood it. Joshua didn't even understand it. And 
you follow the story and the people are really getting mad. They're getting cranky. They expect to know everything. And since they don't know everything, they take it out on Joshua. They're whining and complaining and backbiting and all the rest. Boy, I'm glad churches never do that. Um, but you know, when, when, when people don't know, either you know, because they haven't received information or they didn't hear the information that was given, the result is still the same. People get real cranky and they, they I have to know, I have to know, I have to know. Do you really? I mean, really, you know, how is your knowledge of whatever is happening going to change the outcome of it? Better preparation. Huh? Better preparation. But if you're not involved in the process, how is your knowledge of it going to help? Certainly, if you're involved in the process, yeah, you need to be in the know. So, I mean, churches work, work the exact same way. What God is saying is God is leading the people. I got this. It simply comes down to an issue of trust. Trust in the leader. I said, wait seven days. I'm not going to tell you anything. Now, Abraham and Sarah, we kind of yell at them because of the dumb decision they made later in life, but look where it started. God asked Abraham to do the most outrageous thing I've ever heard of before. Pack everything up and move from here about five, 600 miles over to here in a group of people that are mean and nasty and you're going to hate. Would you do that? Sure. He didn't question it. He didn't ask, what am I going to experience here? How long is this going to last? He didn't ask all the questions that we would ask. We want to know before I commit to this, right? Abraham said, because you're asking God and I trust you, I'm willing to do it. I just trust you're going to take care of me. Now that is the most pure form of faith you will ever see. Because if you have to know the answer, that's not faith. You see? Faith is in what we don't yet see. Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? So if you have to see it, if you have to touch it, if you have to know all the answers, if you, if you have to know what the final outcome is before you commit to it today, that's not faith. When God says this is the thing to do, our worst response is, tell me all the details, God. <laughs> Samuel shows up and says, God says wait seven days. And he turned and left. Well, what am I supposed to do for seven days? That's a whole week. <laughs> Figure it out, Saul. What would be a faithful thing for you to do in these seven days? It's, it's much like Jesus telling the disciples <coughs> at the ascension, <coughs> go back to the upper room and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Not one of them said how long. I'm really glad for that. <laughs> right? It, said, it just said go back and wait. So they had to lock the room I imagine the room started becoming rather odoriferous after a while. <laughs> All those guys in there with, I mean, and they weren't fearing for their lives. I mean, they couldn't, you know, 
be hanging out of windows and everything. I mean, all the windows are shut. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, and they're cowering in fear. They waited eight days. In that locked room, what do you do for eight days? Stinketh much. Yep. <laughs> they did two things. They made wise use of those eight days. They prayed. And the results of their prayers is, I guess, you know, the Spirit revealed to them that God's going to be doing something great with you very, very soon. You need to get ready. So what I want you to do is pick a new 12th disciple. Judas went out and hung himself. So let's, 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 let's keep it at 12. So they had the election of the new 12th. Remember, remember his name? It's like the most insignificant trivia I will ever ask you. <laughs> his name appears that one time in the Bible. Starts with an M. Matthias? Matthias, yes. Yeah. He never, never does anything ever again. Never, never hear this guy again. Right? Just really, really odd. But they make a big deal out of it in Acts chapter 1. But that's what they did for eight days. They at least made use of the time. And wouldn't it have been great if Saul said, now as the, 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 the prophetic leader, spiritual leader of the people, troops, we're going to feed you. But God said, wait. He didn't tell us what to do in the meantime. The only thing I know how to do is to pray. We will spend these seven days in prayer. That's it. And demand that the soldiers do that. That would have been a smart move. But without direction now, the soldiers are getting antsy. They see the enemy forming around them, getting closer and closer, getting scared. Without a leader leading... In their minds, they thought, well, we have no plan. I'm not going to sit around and be you know, totally executed here. I'm going to take responsibility for myself, and I'm getting myself out of Dodge. I'm going back home. You guys stay and fight it out. I'm leaving because <coughs> this doesn't look good. They have way more than we do. <coughs> and that's what many are doing, and it just trickled down and trickled down over days and days, and Saul finally just throws his hands up in the air and says, I can't wait any longer. I know God promised something was going to happen, but I cannot wait. I've got to take charge of this situation. And so Saul disregards the simple fact that God said he will do something. Now, when we talk about faith, the most important aspect of faith is not what we are asked to do. The most important aspect of faith is who is asking us to do it. If we know when we trust the person asking us to do it, the what becomes inconsequential. In this case, it is God asking Saul to wait. The who is God. Therefore, Saul should have had no problem waiting <coughs> so there's some really good battle stories in the bible i mean just just crazy odds just crazy odds and yet when 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 the leader simply follows what god says 
it always turns out incredible. My, my, my favorite is, is Gideon. Yeah, hiding from God. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do this job. This looks really tough. I don't want to do this at all. But when he finally was convinced after the fleece test that God wanted him to do it, God was going to take care of it. He's leading all the troops into battle. And God taps him on the shoulder and says, Okay, stand, up, stand and watch as the soldiers walk through the water. I forget how it went. Those who, who scooped up the water in their hand and those who stick their face in the water, I can't remember which one was which, but I think it was those who scoop up, pull them aside. And it turned out it was only 300 out of the thousands they had. God says, send, send the rest home. I'm sending you into battle with 300 soldiers. <coughs> well, the scouts went out and was able to calculate the enemy has 30,000 troops. 300 against 30,000. There's no way. <laughs> but Gideon knew it was God saying, do this. And he trusted God and he said, sounds stupid to me, but <laughs> I trust you, God. Let's give it a try. Nothing else. I'll go out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> and sure enough, that battle, 300 men went into battle against 30,000, killed every one of the 30,000, and didn't lose one man. Wouldn't it be nice if Saul had done the same? That's what God was going to do. If Saul would have let it, let God do it. But he didn't. <clears throat> so again, I will say, when we talk about faith, the most important aspect of faith is who is asking us to do what we're doing. We have to realize who we really have faith in. Is so, it, good. Is it a lack of faith <coughs> if you second-guess yourself? In other words, you're not sure of the message you got, and you, you think you heard it correctly, but then when it takes time, you start thinking, well, did I hear that right, mm -hmm. or... Uh, did I miss something? Or The Bible says, go ahead and doubt, but do not sin. You're allowed to question. Just don't get stuck in the question. If you ask the question, right, ask and you shall receive. So if you ask in faith, in the name of Jesus, then it will be given to you. Then you have to be willing to go with the answer. So if you, if you get the answer the second time and you still doubt, that's when you start sinning. That's when, you, okay. you know, when, when, when the Spirit says, yes, this is, this is it, then even against 300 troops against 30,000, that's the answer. You've, you've got to go with it. That's, that's faith. But, but oftentimes, yes, we, we, we doubt and then literally talk ourselves out of it because we don't want to really do that. You see, that's, that's the problem. And that's why doubt becomes sin, is that doubt gives you the out with God. If I, if I question this long enough, yeah, I'll be able to convince myself I really, I really don't want to do that after all. <laughs> and I'll rationalize and come up with excuses of why I shouldn't do what I really know in my heart of hearts God, God wants me to do. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Go in doubt. 
just not for very long. <laughs> How do you know that your wants and needs don't enter into it? You know, like you're think you didn't hear it, but because you want it, you you think you hear it. You know, what I mean? How do, sure. How um, that's where that whole heart comes into play. So you you will have a tendency to will it to happen to to, to process that way if you haven't already been loving God, serving God, and obeying God. Okay. Right? But if you have been loving God, serving God, and obeying God, that's going to be a whole lot more clear. But one way or the other, make a decision. Don't, don't get stuck in the what-ifs and all of that. Because you can see Saul, if I wait another day or two, I'm not going to have any soldiers left at all. Why should I wait? Well, I, I always go with my gut feeling because I think your heart it your heart's what you want but that body instinct like that sickness in you, you there's know, I think that's that's I always say that's the Holy Spirit because I do too yes because if you want something you, your heart will go well I really like that and then, you, and then you go back and forth but it's always the gut I always say go with your gut because your gut's yeah. the, the right one that's what I always say could it, it, it if if you start to do the wrong thing, that's that's where your gut takes over, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It just, yeah you that, get the sickness. Yeah, and then your yeah. heart, like your heart's wanting this, and then your guts, you know, then you got this other feeling in your guts, like, oh, I better go with that one because it's your gut instinct. That's so the next thing that should happen then is you stop yourself and say, Lord, what what do you want from me? Okay. You 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 don't want this. What what do you want? Yeah, Paul Paul describes that in Acts. He says, I I I I set my mind to go to this city. But the Holy Spirit stopped me. Right? I started going and I just must have got that, that gut reaction that eh, that's not right. So he stopped and asked God, oh, okay, go the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. So the simple point is God is speaking to us. The Holy Spirit is with us, revealing the truth of God every day, and yes, will intervene for us only if our heart is in the right place that we've made the decision that <coughs> we will love God, we will serve God, we will obey God. That's, that's the formula. So what Saul does, remember his job description, lead the people to serve God and be, be my spokesperson, be, be my prophet. Now, in this case, Saul takes on the role of a priest. Why there wasn't a lightning bolt here, I don't know. <laughs> but... Yeah, again, God's patient, and just going to let, let, let this play out. But again, God is the commander-in-chief. I don't have to explain everything to you. Just do what I tell you. Saul was unwilling to do that, and so he overstepped his authority, and in fact steps on God. The king was never given the right to initiate war. So essentially what Saul is doing is breaking the first commandment. He placed himself above the authority of God. <coughs> but now for the tricky part. Saul takes it upon himself to initiate this war without God's blessing, without checking in with God. If we keep reading, we will discover that both David and Solomon did the exact same thing. Initiated war without checking with God. David and Solomon were never punished. Saul is cut off. Anybody going to say why? <laughs> it seems inconsistent, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. 
It is consistent. Because with Saul, Samuel told Saul what to do. David and Solomon never got an instruction on what to do. They were, Saul was given a direct order, wait seven days. And he broke it. He, yes. When you're told to do something and you do anything other than what you're told, that's the definition of disobeying, right? He disobeyed. David and Solomon received no word from God on what they should do. So they took it upon themselves and there was no, no, no penalty for them. Now verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> what, what Saul is doing is so bad that Samuel says that if Saul had patiently been faithful, his lineage would have been established in Israel for all time. This was the ultimate test for Saul, and he failed. But since Saul did this one thing, that's, that's all Sam is saying, this one thing. He's not going back cumulatively for your entire life and all your screw-ups for your entire life. It was this one thing. I gave you a direct order, and you went against it. Because of that, God will cut you off. It should have been that your, 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 your dynasty, your, your, your lineage would be established forever. But now, you're the only one in your line. <laughs> I'm going to go a different direction. Now, Saul is cut off from his family line. But look, remember where we started in chapter 13? He will remain king for another 42 years. Right? Again, God is patient. He's going to allow, allow this to play out. It would have been the normal practice for Saul's son Jonathan to take over the throne. But of course that doesn't happen. And actually Jonathan, I think, would have made a really good king. <laughs> He's a pretty good guy. Right? And pretty good in battle. But especially, Jonathan's heart was a lot like David's. You know, a man after God's own heart. But you're cut off. Verse 14. See, there, there's the heart again. See how it keeps coming up? The, why is that? <coughs> I, then I wonder, um, was that fair to Jonathan? I mean... It wasn't his fault that his dad. Right. Was this. So was that? I mean, I don't mean to question God. Well, I, I, I I'm glad you used the word fair because because God is not fair. God is just. The big difference. Because you know, fair, fairness means that that we all are on a, a level playing field. Just means God will do the right thing regardless of circumstance. So in fact, David David is better than Jonathan. Jonathan had been pretty good, but David was way better. You see, God knows that. So fair, fairness means that, that we get to set, set the rules. And that's what, what Samuel was doing. He, he's justifying himself before the people. Right? So what is just, what is, what is not only fair, but in fact reasonable and right. 
So just does have a, a fairness component to it, but not according to how we determine fairness. So if God is fair, what he's saying is, I get to do whatever I want, I am God. <laughs> and I know the big picture, y'all don't. So don't, don't question what, what I'm doing. Yeah. Really good question. Jonathan did <coughs> to play a very important role. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, he, he fit right into that too, didn't he? Yeah. So as it turned out, see, God did know what he was doing, that it was the, the best thing for the people. If it, the roles had been reversed, it wouldn't have been as good. If Jonathan was king and Dave, David was, was his armor bearer or whatever you know, title you want to use there, then that would have been not nearly as good a situation. It worked out perfect, the best it could be under, un, under that by which God was leading. Yeah. So the verse fourteen has describing David as a man after God's own heart. I mean, the heart just keeps coming up, and this man after God's own heart will replace Saul. <coughs> now it should be obvious that the reason God rejects Saul is because Saul refused to have a good relationship with God by knowing God's heart. That's sort of the bottom line here. Saul should have known. That if God said it, God is going to do it. He should have known God's heart. God is always trustworthy. So I should just patiently wait. I can do that. But he doesn't even know God's heart. So that's why the description of David is a man after my own heart. Right? That's what I want. I can work with a guy like that. So this is some 40 years before it happens, but God already knows that David will indeed have a, have a, be, be this man after God's own heart. The heart is what any relationship is based on. Now, as I talked last week, in, in the Hebrew understanding of heart, that's where your, your will is. That's where you make your choices. That's where you, you, you process information and have to make the decision, am I going this way or am I going that So a man after God's heart is the person whose will and choice is always directed to what God wants first. But again, it requires you to know God. It requires you to be in a relationship with, with Jesus. So it should seem clear now that that is exactly the point of Saul's failure. It's not so much that he, he, he took on that priestly role. It's only about that he doesn't know God well enough to know what God demanded in that situation. Another way to put it is, the person who is like-minded with God. If you don't like heart, then use the mind. right? A like-mindedness. <clears throat> Do you think God wants the same kind of heart from us today? Oh, yeah. Right? God's the same yesterday to tomorrow. So this is what he's looking for thousands of years ago. Trust me, that's what he's looking for today. So it begins in the heart, and then it, it manifests itself. And what, what God needs to see then is not something we just think about, but it actually comes out of us in terms of our love for God that we serve and obey him. But that all starts here. So it's not a mechanical thing that happens. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that God is controlling us and making us do it. From the heart means, I make the choice to do it. I know this is what God wants me to do, and I willfully choose to do that. That's what God is looking for. 
And again, that's why we will be elevated above angels in heaven. They are programmed to do what they do. We have made the choice. Therefore, we, are, we will become greater in the end. Verse 15. Yep, only 600 soldiers left. This doesn't look good. Verse 22. Not one of these soldiers has a sword or spear they can take into battle against the Philistines. Now, did that not strike you as the most crazy military strategy you've ever seen? But you have to understand what happened. Uh, other books of the Bible tell us the story. During this time, the Philistines are so... There's so many of them. There's so many more of them than of the Israelites that they could afford to send in <coughs> guerrilla terrorist small bands into Israel and just you know, blow a building up or just, you know, just selective terrorism. Now, we've been saying all along the Philistines aren't that bright. They came up with one of the best military strategies I've ever seen. For a period of time leading up to this battle, they sent in these terrorist groups with one mission. Kill all the Israelite blacksmiths. Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> so it should strike you odd that now we have to farm out our sharpening of swords. And actually any meter... What's, what's the term for the science of, of, of metal? Metallurgy. <laughs> I was going to say meteorology. That's not right. <laughs> yeah, metallurgy. So no one knows how to do this now in the entire nation of Israel. So what do you do? Well, you've got to send it out. Just like if your, your, your vacuum cleaner you know, breaks, you don't know how to fix it, you've got to send it out. Now you're at the mercy of the repair guy, right? Do the Philistines have any incentive to sharpen your swords and get them back to you in a timely manner? <laughs> right? If you took your sword in today and say, I really need this back by Friday because we're going to battle. With you. Yes, with you. <laughs> Do you think that <laughs> that guy is, is going to, when you, when you show up Friday and say, well, it's, it's time for battle, I need my sword. Do you think he's going to say, oh yeah, here, it only cost you $3. He's going to come up with some excuse. Oh, sorry, you know, things happened this week and I, I just couldn't get it done. So 600 soldiers, first of all, there's not even enough to do anything with against the thousands of the, of the enemy. And besides that, you have no weapons. <laughs> it's really comical. But again, even with these bad odds, just wait and see what God can do. And there goes chapter 13. And probably a good place for us to stop. Hey, Dave. You bet. Glad you're here. Timed it just right. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.